Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 79, Time and Perspective, recorded on July 30th, 2018. My name is Julie Faithan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello. So I always say that you're with me, but actually today you're truly with me. Usually, this is strange. <laughs> usually we're in two different places recording through Skype, and today we're actually both huddled in my little hoarder's office, enjoying <laughs> the mess together. Well, that's one way to put it. I will say... <laughs> That it's taken a long time for us to get to this podcast. You were saying that you taught a class yesterday and one of your students said accusingly, you haven't done a podcast in two months. And she's yes. absolutely right. Yes, yes. So here we are. Yes, we're back. Uh, and there's lots and lots to talk about. So one of the first things that I think we wanted to talk about, I, I titled this podcast Time of Perspective partially because of our first topic, which is we thought we never really discussed the whole Nancy Crow class um, from the rearview mirror, having been there, as opposed to Nancy Crow anticipation going there. So to refresh your memory, Nancy Crow is a very, 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 very famous quilter. Um, some have called her the mother or the grandmother of the modern quilt movement. She, her work is primarily done with... Um, non-patterned fabrics and she is a sort of a legendary teacher most guilds if you say who here's been to a nancy crow class somebody or maybe several somebody's will raise their hand and some of them have been many times she has many acolytes and devotees um of all kinds um she also has famous people do has many haters as well, but she teaches at something called the Crow Barn, her last name being Crow, which is a barn that was built specifically as a teaching space. And now that I've been, I can tell you, uh, it is gorgeous. And one of the women who was there said, oh yeah, I always go home with barn envy. So <laughs> I didn't know the barn envy was a thing, but it, it burns, certainly is. It, it burns. burns. The barn envy. But um, it was a barn, uh, a Victorian barn from the 1800s that they moved from another property where somebody, I think, was uh, either getting rid of it or didn't want it or whatever. So they uh, moved it. And there's wonderful photos that they have of it being moved, which is no easy feat. And the family, the husband and the two sons, they basically, they did most of the work. And there's a giant classroom there's a wet studio downstairs. There's a little room where uh, you can watch, where you do presentations that require a projector and where you can, uh, you know, sort of give a lecture and that kind of stuff. There's a full kitchen. Uh, there's laundry for the dive studio and for all, not to mention all like the dishes and the linens. Uh, there's a eating area along with an outdoor porch for eating. It is a, it is an incredibly nice setup. That's... I don't even need it, and I have barn envy now. <laughs> and plus, it's just beautiful wood, soaring rafters. Like, it's just it's a beautiful space besides being enormously perfectly set up for teaching. So I definitely have barn envy after leaving there. It's a wonderful space for teaching. And the design wall, so if you're not familiar with quilting at all, and maybe even if you are, one of the things that m many, if not most, quilters have is a design wall. And this is some sort of wall in your home that's larger than the size of the quilt you want to make. And it's usually covered in felt or batting because fabric will essentially stick to felt or batting without any pins. So you can sort of lay out your pieces to figure out what you want to do. I have never had the wall space to have a design wall, really. 
So having a seven foot design wall was amazing. Also being told to do a six foot composition was, what's the opposite of amazing? Depressing, upsetting, <laughs> frightening. Uh, it was amazing. Challenging. But it was also amazing. Um, I would say the class participants were mostly older women. Um, I would say 60 was kind of an average age would be my guess. I mean, I didn't go around asking people their ages and checking IDs. Um, But I would say there was a lot of talk um, that made me think that people, a lot of people had grown kids or were grandparents. Um, You know, there was some uh, menopause conversation. That's sort of a dead giveaway for some stuff too. Um, but yeah, so that's definitely, I would say the demographic, many of the people had been there before and continue to come every year, multiple times. One of the most impressive moments to me was there was a day that Nancy wanted to review the homework that she had given previous students and their homework was like 50 black and white compositions. So the thing is, these are, I can probably paint 50 compositions in not that long amount of time, but to cut and stitch and, you know, I mean, it was amazing. And then they also had all these huge, amazing, like gorgeous quilts. I mean, just from a sheer, like determination and work and dedication perspective, I think it was really fantastic because it was a great reminder that no matter what you're interested in doing, it's not magic, it's work. And it's a lot of really hard work, you know. Um, these women are dedicated in a serious way. Like when they were asked how long it took them to do the homework and stuff like that, almost across the board, they said, oh, it took me, you know, six months or whatever of working five days a week. My it God. took me. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is this is a level of if you want to be great at what you do. It's beyond a hobby at this point. It's a lifestyle. It's a career choice. It's a you know, passion, it's a something more. But I mean, I I think if you talk to somebody who was a triathlete, they would tell you they train six days a week. I mean, I know my stepbrother is very into fitness and he literally goes to the gym every single day, sometimes twice a day, you know, which to me seems psychotic, but to him seems natural and makes him happy, you know. And I think there are people for whom that's true about a lot of things. If you're a person who loves cooking, and you make, you know, in fantastic, amazing meals every single day for multiple meals. Like, that to me just makes me, like, quiver with fear. Uh, so I think everybody has their thing. You just have to be really, really dedicated to it. Maybe, maybe you know how to watch TV for six hours a day really, really well. And you're dedicated. Novice. <laughs> exactly. Or I'm at a higher level. <laughs> whatever it is. I'm a grandmaster. Uh, so I, I think all of that was interesting. So I'd like to talk a little bit about two things, which is Nancy's teaching style and her, the critiques, because I think what I went to the Crow Barn for was the intellectual content. I have been told over and over and over that this was a graduate level course and that it was about concepts and it was, they were not going to teach you how to physically do anything. It was about sort of a further jump than that. And I certainly found it to be true to a certain extent, which is to say my sewing skills held me back, but my intellect and my artistic understanding did not. And I spoke to several people for whom many of the terms she used were difficult to grapple with. Like, what do you mean by this? What does this mean? Et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
and I think that is very hard as a student to not have the right vocabulary to express yourself or to understand what a teacher is asking you to do. So the way that Nancy teaches is she basically, she puts uh, the lesson up onto the wall on a series of cards and then you copy down the cards. Uh, it almost always took me about half an hour to write down the information. And when I asked her a question, like, what does this mean? Or what should I ask? She would say, well, what does it say in your notebook? And she does require you to write down everything. So in that, and I totally understood, on the one hand, I was like, well, that's a really frustrating answer. Why can't you just tell me out of your mouth? But on the other hand, I also understand the lesson of self-reliance, which is to say, when you're wondering what this is and what you should do, look back at your notes, look back into yourself, look back at your, you know what I mean? And see if you can't find the answer. So that's, Definitely. Um, I get that. Uh, I would also say that I had heard that Nancy was legendarily blunt and that when she came around and gave you a critique, you would cry or it would be hurtful. And I would say my experience is that Nancy sort of said the honest things that I would maybe sometimes like to say as a teacher, but never do. Like when somebody says, what do you think of this? And proudly shows you something that's really terrible. And you say, oh, I think it's great. But what you really want to say is, oh, I think it's terrible. But I just <laughs> would never say that. Partially because I think if somebody's happy with what they did for the way that I teach and the goal that I have, I think being satisfied with what you do is the key to getting better. I mean, this is a personal philosophy moment right now, which is I believe that when you're feeling successful, you means you will continue to do it and that you will push yourself then to be even better because it will become internal motivation because you want more. But I can also see how somebody else would say, well, I think that you're, uh, you know, being dishonest and giving these people false direction or they're going too long in the wrong direction or whatever it is and that they need to get corralled into the right direction or I, I don't know. But I can see the argument on the counter. Can you? Well, you also are giving, I think, points for effort. Yeah, definitely. But, Julie, you know that hot mitt you wove for me when you were seven? That is a beautiful hot mitt. Bad. Don't say anything about the hot mitt. <laughs> uh. Bumpy. Uneven. It was woven. Colors it's were not well to be bumpy. arranged. It's probably not the worst thing I ever made you. No, I can name <laughs> others. There's I think an ashtray. Yeah. Hey, that ashtray is probably still on display. Uh, and it might have been a teapot that just never wrapped around all the way. Anyway, uh, yeah, so, you know, that was interesting. I was really bracing myself for some very harsh critique from her. I was ready. And the sort of shocker, I don't know if I would say I'm disappointed, but I might be, is that I had wanted something more. I wanted someone to say to me, this is what I see you're doing and I think it's the wrong direction. And instead I basically got, you need to work on your sewing skills and you need to push yourself harder. Why which is think, all good. Why did you I guess. want? Uh... Because you're my mother. <laughs> no, I mean, because I, I think the barb there. No, I think I think the thing is like I really feel 
that I'm at the point where I want to hear some hard truths because I want, I believe that there's no way for me to get better at what I do than by being told by somebody, not this sucks, that's not useful, that's not helpful criticism. You know, there's this great belief, I think, no, I've said this before, but it was always true when I was a director. You can't tell somebody a direction like, you know, don't do that again unless you have a solution for them. Or that was, you know, that didn't look good. You, you It's not useful to somebody. You have to give somebody something that they can work with. And so it's not like I need someone to tear me down and tell me how terrible I am. Trust me, the internet does plenty of that for me. I get plenty of emails from people to tell me how terrible I am. Or the the uh, man who posted on my uh, one of my videos, my YouTube videos this morning, just one word, rubbish. Yeah. I know. So I get plenty of that. That's not what I'm looking for. But I think what I was looking for was for somebody who has an art brain, whose work I respect, to say to me, I think, okay, here's it is. I had a teacher once, maybe six years ago, who said the most profound thing to me that has rattled my brain for a long time and was really helpful to me, which is all he said is, he said, I noticed that you do very little with your backgrounds. And I think, I was, he was talking about my portraiture. He said, I think if you look at a lot of the portraiture that you like, you'll notice that the background is a significant portion of the composition and not just a sort of blank slate behind a human being. And it's sort of, <laughs> I was like, what? What are you talking about? And then I was like, oh no. I love Van Gogh's portraits, partially because of that magical wallpaper behind him. I love so much of the Fovian work, partially because of the insane colors behind everything that they do. I love, you know what I mean? Picasso's got crazy stuff going on behind his portrait. I mean, it's just, I suddenly realized that he was 100% right. And I have, as a result, every time I do a portrait now, I think about the background. Because I think that was a really key and important thing to say. And I also can look at the paintings I did in that period. They all have insane, intense, wonderful backgrounds. And sometimes I look at them and I go, why don't I still paint like that? And it's because right after he said that, I just was only focused on that. And I probably actually, now this is making me think, I need to bring more of that back in. Um, so I think I was hoping that she would just offer me some gem like that, where she would say, I think because I'm interested in abstract work and I feel abstract is a place where I'm really weak. I thought, well, this is quilting. Like, this is like art quilting in a very abstract way. It's not realistic. I feel nervous about it. I'm going to let myself be totally vulnerable. And then she is going to say to me, if you use more puce in your compositions, they will hang together much better. You know, or if you could, use, yeah. <laughs> or whatever it, it is. Could be, if you could use, enter your puce period. Exactly. If you use less contrast, if you think about, Jane Davies said something to me once that has always stuck with me and has worked with me in my brain forever, which is she said that I use the same line weight all the time. And I was like, oh my God, Jane Davies, what an offhand comment. And it has meant so much to me because I realized that I did that. I, I would hold one marker or one pen or several colors of the same marker or pen and just use those. And then you have the same line weight for everything you do. And it doesn't have rhythm. It doesn't look good. I don't know. I don't think I got any one of those sort of great one-liners. I think I did learn some things. I learned a lot of stuff about myself. 
Um, but I don't think I got sort of the diamond, the gemstone, the whatever you want Maybe to call it. Maybe her method of teaching for. involves you finding it. No, no, I didn't want her to tell doing. me. Just tell me it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the shorthand cut isn't the best way. I know, but then why did I pay like $10,000 to go to be yeah, there I mean. to experience yeah. it and to be forced to concentrate for two weeks on this quilting. I, I did know. remember all the reasons that I don't quilt as much as I used to, of course. Yeah. It takes ten times as long to do a quilt as it does a painting. Yes. There's 50,000 times more technical skill in putting pieces together in a quilt than there is in painting. And you know what else? This is this goes back to the buying a thousand dollars worth of fabric to go to the class. Not hyperbole, a true story. Uh, which is you can't mix fabric colors to get a new color. Like I can show up with five tubes of paint and I can be like, boom, I got a rainbow. But you can't you just can't do that, you know, with fabric. And so you just need more supplies, more space. People kept saying, Are you gonna come back? And I had a good time. I thought it was interesting, and now I certainly have all the supplies that I didn't before. But I said to people, I said, the problem for me with coming back is not that I didn't enjoy it or anything like that. The problem with coming back is that I don't think I could take advantage of what it is she has to offer. Because I think to truly take advantage of it, you have to work in between on this particular stuff that she's asking you to. So that's, I have a job. I have other interests. I have, you know what I mean? I can't do that level of dedication and so in that sense I feel like it would be a little useless because I think I would show up next year or in six months and I would be in the same place that I am now I wouldn't be in a new place okay let's talk about what you did get out of it though because that's imp an important piece of it is back. I mean so I did get out of it just the idea of work and hard work and all that kind of stuff and how much work goes into everything and I mean I think I always knew that I am a workaholic anyway and I am dedicated but I just was reminded again and again that dedication to a craft just doing it over and over and over every single day really matters really 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 matters um I definitely think that I learned Partially because I watched YouTube videos in my hotel room at night in order to learn how to sew some things that I didn't know, like freehand pie piecing curves and like all sorts of stuff like that. So I definitely picked up some sewing skills sort of by well, accident by having to right. do it. She said you have to improve your sewing skills. Yeah, I mean, a huge gem actually was given to me by one of the other students who said, hey, I learned a trick that someone taught me for when you piece two things together and the seams aren't quite right how to fix it. And she showed me the method, which turned out to be great. And I fixed a lot of seams that way. Um, I did uh, learn about some tricks for pushing myself. Like when I have a design, an idea, how to push it a little bit further. I was reminded of how important it is to work in a series. It's not something that I am particularly dedicated about doing, and I think it would be really good for me, whether it's sewing or painting or collage or whatever. Um, working with a single idea for over a long period of time would be a very good thing for me. Um, it actually reminds me a little bit of the 100-day project, which is to say, I think just the way that my life is right now with all the travel, it's very hard for me to dedicate myself to a daily art project because it has to be portable. But I think that if I were able to be home 
for a period of close to 100 days maybe just 30 days I need at this point but um I would love to do something where it's like every day I'm not saying like you do a watercolor every day I'm saying even more specific that I'm saying like let's explore leaves every single day just a leaf series let's explore you know red and aqua and those are the only two colors you can use you know plus black and white let's explore whatever it is I just think it would be good for me to work in a more concentrated and focused way. You know, I, I've been taking a lot of classes lately, partially because I decided that 2018 was going to be the year of sewing because I've been doing um, the sewing on HSN and I wanted to not be a, well, for lack of a better term, an airhead who like didn't understand actually how the machines worked or how sewing worked. I wanted to make sure that I understood how to sew a garment so that I could talk about garment sewing with some experience, not because I'm an expert tailor, but just because I'd be, I would be like, this stitch is important to have it on a machine because X, Y, Z, or, you know, there's stuff that you learn from doing that you don't, you know, from a sales sheet. And I think, you know, I've been taking a lot of quilting classes because I wanted to make sure that I understood why all those features were there. And it, it, I mean, in that sense, all of the classes have been really good. I have learned a lot about my brother's sewing machines, and I've been able to sew a million things on them, which has been great. Um, but I would also say that I maybe need to think about taking some time, that time that I would dedicate to a class, and truly saying, if I was going to go to class once a week for five hours, which is what I used to do at the MFA, it may have even been six hours, why can't I just say once a week for six hours, I'm going to do that for myself at home. But it's so hard to carve out that time. It really is. Unless you have sort of being the force of going to class. Somehow doing it at home makes you feel guilty. It's just like, how come when I'm on vacation, I feel okay sitting down in the middle of the day and reading a book. But if I'm not on vacation, quote unquote, then I can't do that because I'm frittering away time somehow. Yes. And we talked about this in my class actually this weekend, which is every, they were all saying like, it feels so good to make art and I just haven't done this for long enough. And I was saying, you know, it's so important to make art and to make time for it and to make time for yourself. I think as women in particular, we often feel like other people's needs or wants or whatever supersede our own. And also it's even like if somebody said to you, uh, I can't come, I have a yoga class, you'd be like, oh, that's fine. But if they say to you, I can't come, that's my art time. You're like, oh no, you're coming. Your art time is not a real thing. You know, and I think that you need to, or not you, we, I, me, because I'm terrible about it, all need to find a way to say that that art time that you've set aside, that that is a real thing and a true dedicated time period and that nothing should be able to interfere with it. But it's hard. I mean, one of the reasons I tell people that this stuff is important is because I know it is and it's hard. It's hard for me to do. It's hard for all of us to do. But I think, I think it's really good. Well, also... The art may never be finished, you know, it's ongoing. So you, f you feel like at the end of this two hours, you should have a product. You should have a spreadsheet or you should have a bunch of uh, bills that you've paid. Or, right. you know, the kitchen sink should be clear or that somehow you should have something you can point at and say, see, I did that. But with the art, it may be happening a lot of it in your head. It may be a project that isn't done for a while it's it's it may be something that's a foundation for something else and right. what that makes me think of is so when I was packing my supplies for class on Friday 
I did not necessarily have a lot of time, but I was packing my paint colors and I just decided, I was like, I'm going to make a color wheel from the colors I'm bringing to class because that way I'll just know what I have and I won't have to like guess, you know, what colors they're going to make together because different, you know, mixes are different. Uh And in the end, the half an hour that I spent making this color wheel, which you could have seen as a waste of time or just like me indulging in playing with paint, which I find fascinating color mixing is so fascinating um turned out to be fantastic it was totally fantastic because I was able to show up to class shorthand everything it made it really clear to students like how to do stuff I it 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 gave me some confidence about you know what how things were going to turn out like I just really I think you can't uh underestimate how important it is to do those little things for yourself even if it takes time away from what you should be doing and i will say this there's a dresser that i bought (laughs) at the local thrift store and i know exactly what i want to do with it and it's just sitting in the middle of my studio and i have not let myself go near it because i have too much work that i have to do but i keep thinking maybe i'll just sneak up there and spend an hour or two but you know already it's not going to be an hour or two. You know it's, it's I know. It's going to hypnotize you and that's why you don't do it. It's true cuz I know that once I go in it's I'm going to be <laughs> I'm going to be a crazy person about painting that dresser. So yeah. But yeah. Um I, I but I think this is the whole thing about to some people it may seem insane that I take so many classes and that I'm constantly learning, but part of it is because I want to spend that time working on me. I want to sp- it's not just about the actual thing that you're learning. It's also about make forcing yourself to make that whole of time for so it. So do you suppose that's one reason, actually, a significant reason that you do take so many classes? Because it's your way of somehow allowing yourself to have dedicated art time? Yeah, I think it is without question. Like I would say that the reason that I take art classes is to make sure that I am constantly not only doing art, but pushing myself to do some things uh, that are out of my comfort zone or that I wouldn't normally do. Because I think that is what class is for. It's not for reinforcing the things you already know. It's not for making you feel good about what you're already doing. It's really for about like getting frustrated and pushing past that there was a woman in class this weekend who got very frustrated several times and I kept saying to her and I think this is I believe this wholeheartedly all of the good stuff is just beyond frustration it's fantastic that you're frustrated because it means that you're pushing at the boundaries of what you're comfortable with if you can get beyond that frustration I think you'll be really happy I think the problem is many people stop because they're frustrated instead of saying I'm frustrated so I am going to therefore change direction keep going you know do something and and like it's like how you never change unless you have to you always said that whenever we were unhappy as kids whenever you always said well it's a good thing that you're unhappy because now you're going to make a change and isn't that exciting and it was like one of those weird things where I was always like, you're the worst mom. Why would you tell me? <laughs> you know, but it's, it turns out that that's true. We, people don't change when they're happy. They only change when they're unhappy because that's the only time you're willing to make a change. And so the same thing I think is true in art, which is the only time you grow is when you are frustrated or something and you have to get kicked out of your comfort. So don't keep us in suspense. What happened with your student? 
I think she made something really fantastic and she seemed pleased when she left. So, but it's always hard to know. You know, I think people, um, just as much as I don't want to hurt my students' feelings by being like, I think that's really ugly. You know, <laughs> they don't want to hurt my feelings by being like, I, I really did not have a good time in class today. Thanks so much. But I like to think everybody has a fantastic time because that's the point. But who knows? I mean, everybody also learns differently. Some people have trouble learning in public. And I know I've talked to other students who say, like, they had a lot of trouble um, in class because they feel like other people are judging them, you know, and looking at what they do. So they don't really end up really learning a lot in class because they're having trouble with it. I mean, I just think it's like everybody's different. That shouldn't be a surprise. We're another, another, another pearl of wisdom. Another pearl of wisdom. Please take that away with you. Maybe I should call this podcast Everybody's Different But Special. So is there anything else about the crow barn? No. I think um, I have a ton of leftover fabric. You know, uh, Nancy kicked out about half the fabric I brought and said that it didn't match the five shades. What five shades? So there are these five shades from white to black or in between white and black uh, the most interesting thing is that nancy does it by eyeball this matches this doesn't this matches this doesn't this is you know mm-hmm. um so but a bunch of i can't do it like she can i look at a fabric and i think it's fine and she's like no so a bunch of people brought out their cameras because now we all have these cameras and you change a black and white filter to see if it matches right are they the same in grayscale and they should be. And the interesting thing was that sometimes she was right and sometimes she wasn't. And then it became a big debate about do you trust her eye or do you trust the phone? Because to a certain extent, the phone is true, but also your perception is greater than reality. So if you perceive something as darker, whether it actually is or not, is sort of inconsequential, especially because nobody's going to look at your quilt as a black and white through their phone. Do you know what I mean? They're going to mm-hmm. look at it as it is with their eye. So I don't know. I don't know. But that I did learn. Oh, that's something I should say that I learned. I learned a ton about color value and about scale and like why that's important. So I would say of all the things I took away from the crow barn, 100%, that's the most important. Good. See, it was great. And you got to spend two weeks in Ohio. And I got to spend two weeks in Ohio. I saw the, um, columbus art museum while i was there which was very nice um i also got to see a friend of mine who lives there joe which was great um yeah i had a you know and i got to see beautiful country roads there are gorgeous sunsets out there and farmland and all kinds of stuff that i'm not used to seeing so it was really nice all right let's move on because you've just come you've just come back from another kind of trip Oh, yes. We, we, madame. So I went to France where we went to all the museums. No, we didn't. It was impossible. (laughs) It would be impossible. So we only went to Paris. We stayed just in Paris. Um, And, you know. First it was boiling hot, we have to say. Which it does influence your trip because it it, it saps the amount of energy you have. Yeah, so Paris does not necessarily have air conditioning. And certainly the museums were very lightly air conditioned not to american standards shall we say uh so you know there everything felt a little bit like a slog <laughs> <laughs> uh so it did feel a little like you know where i'm slogging through these great works of art another monet another you know 
oh, Renoir, you're so boring to me. Like, you know, it yeah. did start to feel that way a little bit, which is terrible to say. Um, and partially because there's so much spectacular art, you know. I've been to a lot of museums where, like, they have their one Picasso. They have their one little, you know, whatever. One, if they're lucky, they might have a Renoir, but it's not very common. They might have a Monet kicking around, et cetera, et cetera. But they just don't have necessarily a ton of it. But I felt like every museum we went to in Paris, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, it's like just, it was a embarrassment. Well, one would hope that when you went to the Picasso Museum that they had more than one Picasso. They, they did have several <laughs> Picassos. Although, fewer Picassos than on display than were at, probably at MoMA in their Picasso room. I mean, large pieces, certainly. Um, so the Picasso Museum did have uh, an exhibit that was about Guernica, which is a painting that lives in Spain at the Prado, I think. Actually, I don't know where Guernica is. I know it's in Spain. I'm not even sure what museum it's at. I'll have to look that up. Um, but it's uh, probably Picasso's most famous painting, I think. And I've never seen it in person, so I was really interested to see it. So the exhibit was a combination of, like, history surrounding that time period because it's a very political Spanish painting. Civil War. Right? And it also uh, had a lot of preparatory sketches that he had done, which was fantastic because I think of Picasso as pretty much like emerging, you know, uh, from whatever without even thinking about it. But Guernica, mom just looked it up. It looks like it's in the Museo Reina, Reina Sofia, Sofia in Madrid. Um, so it's... Anyway, so that was interesting. They also had basically um, an entire floor of art that was inspired by Guernica by other artists. And that was really interesting to see how contemporary artists have interpreted the painting and how it carries through in their work. Um, but it was just... I had long wanted to go to the Picasso Museum, so it was super exciting to get to go. Only half the museum was open, and I didn't care. So that was great. Um, we went to the Louvre, which is always overwhelming. We did elbow our way to the front to see the Mona Lisa. I didn't live in New York for 16 years not to know how to elbow my way to the front of a crowd. Um, and I'm pretty sure I stepped on some children and some short people as well. <laughs> Uh, I, I can't say that I behaved well. Um, and then there was uh, the Musée d'Orsay, which I think is a really wonderful museum. Too hot to be believed. <laughs> but really wonderful. So it's in an old train station. Uh, and it has sort of a center area, almost an atrium in the inside, which is where the tracks would have been, which is just a giant cavernous you know, space filled with sculpture. And then off of it on multiple, on two levels, basically, or maybe in three levels, there are halls full of paintings. And it's like, you just walk and see all these wonderful things. And one of the really nice things was you and I and Steve had gone to a thing at the Harvard Art Museum that was about the painting that was on loan from the Musée d'Orsay, which was by Homer, um, and it was, oh God, I'm forgetting the name of it now, but it was one with the two women dancing by the in sea. That, in the 
lamp light. Yes, yeah. and I know I did a whole blog post about the lecture, which was interesting. And I thought, well, it's so great that this painting is on the loan from the Musée d'Orsay because I will never get a chance to see this painting in person. So I'm so glad that it's here. And then I wandered down a hallway. And to be fair, by the way, we do not do the whole museum. When we went to these museums, we were like, I, we got three hours here. Let's make the best of it. If we see whatever we see in that time is what we see. Right. Um, because I can't do eight hours in a museum as much as I love a museum, especially not in a hot museum. Um, and especially because like to eat in any of these places, um, it was sort of unlike any museum I've been to before. The lines were insane. I don't know if it was because it was summer or whatever, or if they're always like that, but most museums I've been into America, and I think I've been to a lot of museums in America, you can get a table in, they usually have multiple restaurants. You can get a table fairly easily. If there is a wait for anything, it's usually not more than like 10 minutes. We're talking about you could wait in line for 45 minutes, you know, to basically get a water and a muffin or something. So it was just that, that to me across the board made it so that you couldn't stay in the museum all day because there was mm -hmm. just no way to do that. But anyway, I step aside. So it was really cool to wander down a hallway and see this Homer painting that I thought I would never have the opportunity to see again right there just hanging on a wall. It was kind of a magical moment. So that was really nice. A familiar face. A familiar face. The other thing that I loved at the Musée d'Orsay, and I will be sharing pictures of all of these museum things on the blog over the next month. There are so many photos. You don't understand hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photos. Um, but uh, one of the things I loved is they had an exhibit hall that was a mixture of Gauguin, who is a painter I've loved forever, mostly from his Tahitian period. That's most of the stuff of his that I'm familiar with. Um, and Van Gogh and who doesn't like Van Gogh? I've also never been in a room with so many Van Goghs. I have, I mean, I've seen a room that maybe had like three Van Goghs and been deeply impressed by that. This was just like wall after wall of like just gorgeous intense work but the Gauguin work that was interesting was it was a lot of his work from France not surprising but it was pre I believe the Tahitian period and his style of painting was shockingly similar to Van Gogh so seeing them together the way that he was using pastels in these kind of short strokes was very much the way that Van Gogh was using his oil paints. And so that was like a mind blower for me in a lot of ways and made me think of the two artists in a different kind of way and even put Van Gogh in some different perspective, you know, wondering why his work didn't sell in his lifetime. And yet Gauguin seems to have made a go of it. Um, just interesting questions uh, sort of all around that. So that was a great museum to go to. Um, we went to L'Orangerie and we saw did. the We water saw the lilies. water lilies. Mostly Morning. I saw a lot of people posing really hard with water lilies. Huh. Um, I think the thing is the space would be spectacular with fewer people, because you would have a chance to really get what I think. So the so if you've never been, the intention is, is these two oval rooms. And in each of the rooms, there are four curved paintings. And they and the paintings take up most of the wall other than the doorway. And they curve around you. So the notion is that if you were to stand in the center of each of the ovals, you would basically have the sense of being in Giverny 
where Monet painted these water lilies almost immersed in the landscape. As if you were a frog on a lily pot exactly. pad in the center of the yeah. pond. Yeah, and I can imagine this would be a totally magical moment to like commune with art, but instead most of what I felt was either if you sat on the chairs that were in the center, it was like, okay, someone's butt is in my face, which is super fun. Um, and, it, you know, if you stood there, it's like mostly you just saw a sea of heads, you know, and people doing stuff. Now, I mean, it's kind of a spoiled brat thing to say. It's like, I only want my private pool. I'm not going to swim in a public pool. But I did kind <laughs> of wish that, like, you just had, you know, sort of the Yayoi Kusama moment. Because she insists that only one to two people can go into her infinity rooms at any time. Is that you could have that moment of exploring and being there and feeling sort of that feeling of the painting. Um, that said, they're still spectacular. They're still wonderful. It's just, I wanted more. <laughs> uh, but that was great. And then there was a great exhibit downstairs of a ton of work that I just love. Um, Haim Sutek, is that his name? Something like that. He is a painter. I've seen a lot of his work recently in some, um, in various... I was starting, I was just going to look for his name. But anyway, I've seen a lot of his work recently in a number of um, museums. And he is a guy who does these sort of creepy, twisted uh, landscapes and people. So there's a lot of his work that I like. There was Picasso and Monet and Renoir. And um, there was uh, just a whole bunch of great work in the basement. You know, some Cezannes. There were, uh, yes, Haim Soutine. I was vaguely right, wasn't I? In the ballpark. In the ballpark. In the ballpark. Um, and he really just had some beautiful painting that I liked. There was some Andre Duran. There was a lot of landscape. There was just, uh, I don't know how to put it. I had a really good time. I really enjoyed seeing all of it. I also find it interesting in museums to watch what people stop at. Because uh, I think the thing is, people stop at the paintings that everybody knows because everybody knows them, yes. right? But there are other paintings that either get a cluster or get a group or get, and you start to wonder, you know what I mean, um, what it is that interests people about the work. And so I also think particularly when you're in a foreign country, you never know the kind of like markers that you're missing, the, mm -hmm. the cultural markers that you're missing that maybe a local group gets. There's a whole bunch of Napoleon um, and was his first wife Josephine mm -hmm. or am I crazy? Okay. Napoleon and Josephine artwork, especially in the Louvre, like on a grand scale, you know, Emperor Napoleon kind of stuff. You mean of them? Of them. Yes. No, he wasn't like George Bush painting in his bathtub. This is... Of him, of him, um, that there were just huge crowds of uh, people in front of all the time. From an artistic point of view, they weren't my thing. They weren't badly done or anything. They're just not sort of the stuff that kind of work that interests me generally. Um, and I, there were a lot of people sort of talking about them, and and so I understood though that from uh, probably a historical, it wouldn't be different than crowds of people going around George Washington crossing the Delaware, crowds of people going around, you know, any mm -hmm. of those kind of paintings that you certainly see people looking at, you know. Um, I was surprised to find more than one portrait of Ben Franklin 
<laughs> well, you know, he lived in Paris for a while. I found that out when I was like, why are people painting Ben Franklin so... And there, that, that was the answer. Um, where else did we go? Is that it? Did we not do anything else? I don't oh, we know. Went to the Rod- I wasn't we, there. We went to the Rodin <laughs> Museum. Did you notice I wasn't there? I did notice yeah. that you weren't okay. there. I did notice. Um... I mean, we went to the Rodin Museum, which I've been to before. I really enjoyed it. The grounds are wonderful, and it was fun to see the sculpture. And I was reminded that the thing about Rodin is that his sculpture is so lifelike that um, Steve, who, you know, is a grown man, was suddenly like, take a picture of me. And he was, like, getting in the same pose that the statue was in. And... He's not like that normally about stuff, but I can see that you come across this life-size thing and it seems to be so human and yet it's in this weird or interesting pose and that impulse inside you to to be it, to ape it, to, you know, show that it and you match is just so human and so there. Um, Rodin in his lifetime was accused by people of... Um, making molds of humans in order to do his sculptures because they seemed so perfect. People couldn't believe that he wasn't doing it without a mold. That sounds like a creepy... <laughs> You've encased a wow. person inside. Or whatever it is. Yeah, it just sounds totally creepy. But so I thought that... I thought it was really great. I love his work. I love his... Uh, she wasn't his wife, right? She was his lover, Camille... Claude. Claudel? yeah. Uh, I think she was his lover, yeah. Oh, yeah, but not his wife. There's a movie about them. Okay. Uh, about her. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is to see Rodin's personal art collection, which is in the museum, which is, again, like, a nice little Gauguin. He did a uh, painting of the thinker for Rodin. Uh, I guess at some point he shared the apartment uh, that the Rodin Museum is in with several other painters, including Monet. So there is a Monet or two kicking around. Um, there's definitely, uh, there's some, there's a nice Van Gogh. There's just a bunch of other stuff. I mean, and it's interesting to me just to think that these guys were hanging out, hanging out together. And that's so cool. I also saw a spectacular Rodin exhibit at the Peabody Essex Museum maybe two years ago that has ruined me. Up in Salem, Mass. Yes. Because not only did they have so many Rodin sculptures in one place right next to each other, but they had dancers in the space. And again, that's that body thing of, and it just, it made the sculptures so alive, but it was wonderful. They have a lot at the Rodin Museum. They have a ton of um, maquettes, uh, workshop pieces, things that were in progress, hand studies, and all sorts of stuff like that. That was really fun to see. There was one particular series of things. I don't think they ever probably got made into larger pieces that I loved. I had some trouble reading the signs, which were in French. So I did use Google Translate a lot. But um, but the thing that I loved about them is it would be like a figure crawling out of a bowl. Or a person taking a bath in a cup. Or like it was just, it was ways in which vessels, bowls, cups, that kind of stuff, pitchers, were being mixed with human beings in a playful way that I found enormously charming. So I really like that. Actually, speaking of that, I love sculpture. And at the Musée d'Orsay, they had these little monster sculptures that I loved. 
Um, I wonder if I can find the name of that artist, but they were just so spectacularly odd. They were like, they reminded me of those ugly dolls that people, um, used to make all the time where their ugliness was part of their charm. We also went to a ton of cathedrals, which speaking of art, cathedrals are a major artistic experience, right? That's not surprising. Um, and by the way, the ugly sculpture person is Leopold Chavot. Chavot. Aren't these fun? I'm showing mom a picture of the ugly things. Fun. I'll be showing, sharing those in a blog post. Um, the other thing I want to say is Steve got spoiled really, really fast. So we went to the Rodin Museum and we saw the Gates of Hell, one of probably Rodin's like three or four most famous pieces, this huge piece. Um, and just absolutely gorgeous, black, giant, you know, intimidating thing. And then we went to the Musée d'Orsay and they have a plaster of the Gates of Hell. And Steve goes up, he goes, well, this isn't as good as the real one. And I was like, whoa, spoiled really fast, right? But that was funny. But yeah, no, the, the churches were gorgeous and filled with art. And I was reminded how much art was both valued and used um, by the church to create spectacular murals, just an amazing effects. Like you walk into a room with these uh, ceilings and these windows and this painted sky. And I can't imagine that you wouldn't think that God was there in that kind of space. You know, intricately carved wood, amazing mosaic floors that you just can't believe people are walking on because they're so gorgeous. Um, altar after altar with statues and sculptures and paintings and you know some of the churches su surprised me because it looked like they I'm used to churches having all the paintings kind of from the same period it's like somebody decorated once and then we're done but some of them surprised me they had what looked like some modern art hanging in a couple of the areas and I hadn't really thought of that before but then I was reminded of a small very small chapel I went to in Spain um, in the Catalan area that had intensely modern sculptures of Jesus made from metal. Huh. And I thought, you know, that's my own fault that I think of religious art as old instead of thinking that it can be modern and that people who went to a church like that would have an interest in it still being relevant or present, right? not just in sort of an old-fashioned way. So that was really cool. Also, you went to the flea market. Yes, I did. Which is kind of an artistic experience in some ways. It is, you know, and it was, um, it was interesting because there were lots of architectural remnants, which I love partially because I just bought a house. And so I've been thinking about architectural remnants. So that was probably the most interesting thing to me. But also from an artistic point of view, you know, I kept thinking, should I buy these French postcards? Should I buy these, you know, letters written in French from somebody? Should I buy this paper ephemera? Should I buy these, you know, old stamps, coins, jewelry? I mean, insert whatever it is. Um, I've decided that the fireplace was probably too large to get in the suitcase. And also my French bargaining is on par with my French speaking. So <laughs> that was not going to be a good situation. But, um... It was really, it was, I'm a flea market fan in general, and I sort of wondered if the French flea was going to have anything different than you see around here. Like, was it going to be spectacularly different stuff? And sort of unshockingly, it wasn't. I mean, there was more stuff in French, but basically, you know, 
we have the same stuff and no one at the flea market is selling this, you know, Bible from 1504 or anything like that or this, you know, thatched roof from the 1600s. That's just not happening. So I think I'll uh, stick to Brimfield since it's closer to home and easier to get to. Easier to put it in the car trunk than in the suitcase. <laughs> to put it in the car trunk, certainly, 100%. Okay, well, let's talk about the house you just are about to buy. The debt I'm about to accrue. Yeah, let's talk about that. Because, in a way, it's a, as you said, it's a gigantic it's a art gigantic project. It's a gigantic art project. And also, part of it is you're thinking about what should your studio space look like. Yeah, I mean, listen, I've always thought that a house would be any, I've always called it the biggest craft project I'll ever have, right? And especially since we're doing a renovation, there is a lot of that kind of stuff. Although most of the renovation is not cosmetic. I mean, it will have to be to a certain extent, but most of it is structural and stuff like that. Um, but actually, that's not that different than my altered book class. Uh, I think people were surprised. We spent most of the first day working on the structure or the foundation mm -hmm. of the book and then all the fun decorating kind of happens in a flurry at the end i think it's true if you've ever made anything out of clay what a nightmare you have to spend <laughs> so long preparing you preparing know the, the clay. clay if you've ever cooked anything there's or baked my god it's like to get the dough ready for anything. You know, I want to punch myself in the face halfway through. Why punch did I think dough. this would be exactly? Why did I think this would be fun? I think there's a lot of stuff like that where you have to do the foundational work first. And so part of putting together this studio is a, I mean, a, I don't want to completely decrease the value of my house by putting what is very specifically yeah, a permanent art studio. Right. Right. Because actually we saw a house with an art studio in it. And while I loved it, I think one of the reasons it didn't sell for a lot of buyers is they walked in and they were like, what do I do with this room that has linoleum floors and all this weird storage that doesn't fit any normal people's stuff and da, 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 da you know? So I think I'm staying away from doing, I think, I think, I think, but I think I'm staying away from doing any like series built in stuff that dictates it as a studio. And basically what we're doing is we're taking the third floor of the house as an accessory apartment. It's not in great shape. Um, and so I think what we're basically going to do is gut it. So it's a big, large room. Um, and then, you know, it has a bathroom which is what you need. It has a kitchen, which would be great for me to have like a big sink and, you know, a microwave and a, whatever. I think we're going to get rid of the oven unless I'm doing a ton of polymer clay. Um, but really thinking about like how to set up that space so that it's the most useful to me and yet doesn't kill the value of the house. I, I know I've talked to the contractor a lot, like should the floor be a real floor? Like the rest of the house, uh -huh. it's a Victorian house. So the rest of the house is wood floors. Uh, should it be wood floors or am I going to ruin wood floors and it should be laminate or something else? Yeah, know? I mean, the point of studio is... Making a mess. Yeah, you're going to... You don't want to spend all your time worrying about dropping stuff the on floors? the floor. Exactly. And I certainly don't want to have to rip up beautiful wood floors when I want to sell the house or, you know what I mean, whatever yeah. else. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's the same with the walls. Like the house is horsehair plaster. Am I going to put horsehair, am I going to put plaster, do you know what I mean, back uh -huh. into this beautiful house or am I just throw up some drywall? Uh -huh. So there's just a lot of decisions like that that I'm trying to make, which are both like practicality and, you know, thinking about this as an investment and yada, 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 all that kind of stuff. So 
Um, I'm excited about it. It seems like a dream. It seems totally unreal. We close on Thursday, fingers crossed, knock on everything that might be wood that's within reach. I don't think that's actually wood. I think you just knocked on laminate. I think this is melamine. All right. Is that laminate? Knock I don't know. On melamine. Is there any wood in this entire room? <laughs> I'm like desperately. Oh, is this clipboard made out of wood? There you go. It's right, like press board or something. That's close. That's close. Um. So yeah, I think I think the things that are important to me are ventilation. Uh, absolutely. Because I think that's a big issue and has been for me in rental forever, forever. forever. And I've heard so many horror stories about so many artists getting sick later in life or developing an allergy to the mediums they work with from repeated exposure. So ventilation is a huge non-joke issue for me. Um, and then light. I did the one of the few things I said to the contractors. I said, when I moved, there are two things I remember the guy who uh, gave me my estimate saying. And he said, one, I would call you a hoarder, but everything's so well organized. It's not untrue. Uh, people don't understand mixed media art. Uh, <laughs> and two, he said, I've never seen so many floor lamps in my life. He said, I count 13 lamps in this room. And the thing is, I've lived in, I live in an apartment now like this. I've lived in so many apartments, there's no overhead light. There are no overhead lights. Everything has to be a lamp. Actually, the house you're just about the to house buy moving into. doesn't have overhead, no overhead lights because the Victorians didn't do that. Exactly. So I just, I think I'm being, a, I, I don't want to say I'm being crazy, but like I know in this tiny room that we're sitting in, and this isn't even a room I make art in. This is my office where I have my computer. I have one, two, three, you know, lamps right here just on my desk. Right. So I know that for me to feel happy, to be awake in the winter, to feel like I can see and that everything's fine, that I'm going to need more light than a human being thinks is either necessary or appropriate. You've always been inappropriate, Julie. I've always been an inappropriate user of light. Um, so that's the other thing that's important to me. I think other than that, I'm willing to let the space just be flexible. I have uh, a ton of container store drawers that I've used for years, and I'm just going to say that those are great. They work for me. One of the things I like about the whole Alpha system is that it's reconfigurable. The Alpha shelves. The shelves I'm a little worried about. I'm not sure if they'll be useful to me because that third floor is very sloped because it's an attic. And it's the roofs, you know, the roof comes in all around. So I'm not sure how much of those, how much wall is actually going to be able to not be sloped. I think once we take out the few internal walls that exist on the third floor, there'll be almost no flat wall up there. So it will have to be drawers because there's, or freestanding shelf units. So that's one concern that I have. But I have lived in so many rental apartments. I am 100% sure I can find a way to make it work in a place that I, I actually know you own. could make it work. Right? So my, my, one of the things that is on my wish list, but I can live without for a long time and has nothing to do with the actual renovation that's happening, like the walls and then this and then that, is I really want a really big, huge work table that I could do like larger, you know, yeah. projects on yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. So, I mean, I think that's, like, down the road or whatever, uh, but that is something that's on my wish list to get. Um, you want a huge table, 
the way other people want a giant island in their kitchen. Yes, yes, I do, I do. So I'm, I'm hoping that that will happen someday. I'm also, um, the slop sink, because the kitchen's there, I think that's great. I said that maybe we wouldn't, depending on how big that kitchen sink is, I can't even remember right now. We might not even replace it. We might just trash it because... Yeah. Stain, is it stainless steel? Is that what it is? Or it's... It's some cheap, crappy, terrible Oh, well, something. use it, abuse but it, But, like, why not abuse it, it and use yeah. it, save the money? You know, I don't need a brand new sink. Right. To deal with because I'm going to cover it and stuff anyway. And so that's the other thing, which is since we're replacing a lot of the plumbing, like knowing that I'm going to do my best not to pour paint down there, but some paint is going to get down there. That has to be a drain that has a very clear, you know, I don't know whatever it's called. I don't know enough about plumbing. You just explain to the contractor what you're going to, how you're going to use it and let right. him figure it out. You have the world's greatest contractors. So. Yes. Which I'm so grateful to a friend for recommending. So I'm really, really happy about that. Because um, one of the things he said to me that I didn't even know was a possibility is he was saying that there's a, usually air is recycled. Like your heating, because it's forced hot air heating in this house. And so usually your air is recycled from within the house. That's just the way that it works. But he said if I'm concerned about ventilation, that they could put the third floor on a separate ventilation. And that they could make it that the air for there comes from the outside and not from inside. So it wouldn't be like on an airplane where you're, you know, inhaling the same air over and over, it would be like new air coming in and the other air going out. So I thought that was a great suggestion. I'm excited yeah. to live for a long time with clear lungs. <laughs> um, so that's sort of the 411 on the house. I'm excited. So let's finish with talking about the class you just taught for two days, the Altered Book Class. Yeah, so the Altered Book Class was great. Um... First of all, I have to say, this was my first time teaching at somebody's home. There's a woman who has taken a couple classes from me named Marissa, um, and she Is that said... that true? Because remember, there were ladies in Texas, some lady in Texas, and you taught at her home. I didn't like teach that. her at her home. We rented a space. Originally, oh. I was going to teach her home, oh, but then instead okay. there was a space. We didn't rent it, but she arranged with a space. Okay. Yeah, no. So this was actually um, my first time teaching in a home other than my own. Which is a little nerve-wracking, you know, because you you're don't thinking know what about, to expect. well, not only do you not know what to expect, but it's also like you're worried about mm -hmm. the floor, the this, will people be polite? But people were fantastic, and she was, like, a beyond hostess, did really nice. She threw a barbecue for everybody on the Saturday night. Like, it was really, it was outstanding, fantastic. So that was all great, and her home was beautiful, which was so nice. And her husband was great, and her kids were the cutest. It was really, we had a good time. Anyway, so let's talk about the class. So the class is all about how to transform a book into an art object. And I think the most mind-blowing moment for most students was not in any of the art techniques, which frankly were incredibly mind-blowing. <laughs> but I think the most exciting moment for most of them um, was when I talked about how to find a theme for your book, you know, and I gave them some ideas about how to do it and some different um, solutions that might work. And I think the reason that it was exciting is because for those who had found themes, they said it found me, it was ma making decisions on what papers to use, what stamps to do, uh -huh. what, da -da -da -da, what to put on that page just became exponentially easier because you, you sort of knew where you were going 
you know, Uh and I think sometimes people create just for the joy of creating, which is great, but it can also be paralyzing because you're a little bit lost. Should I do this or should I do that? But do you think it would be do this or that? What do you think would be better, this or that? But it's like somehow if you say the theme of my book is flowers, when something comes up and it's a canoe, you're kind of like, I'm going to save the canoe for later. I'm just going to go straight out, you know, flowers now. Or which stamp should I choose? Well, this one looks like a flower. You know, I think there's a lot of stuff like that where if you can think of an idea, it makes all the decisions easier. It sounds so obvious, but I think a lot of people don't think of that stuff. I know I don't always. But that's probably true about a lot of creative things. You know, whether it's a dance or a movie or an article you're writing or a dinner that you're planning or whatever, you you give yourself a spine, which is the idea of what the theme is, and then you can build. Oh my gosh, that totally reminds me. I have so I had a phone call recently with some uh, people at HSN. And they were talking about their customer. Home Shopping Network. Sorry, Home Shopping Network. And they were talking about their customer. And they were incredibly specific. Like, she has a name. She has an age. She has, like, and I. what I realized is it's the same thing as, as you were just saying of me. It's, like, then you know how, how to talk to her right. because you have a name, you have a persona, you have a whole thing, you know. And I think the same thing is true here, which is anytime you can get more specific and it doesn't feel like you're trying to do everything. It reminds me, actually, of when I was a director and actors would come in and they'd be like, I can play any role. I'm going to do this monologue for a 20-year-old even though I'm 60 or I'm going to do this monologue for a 60-year-old even though I'm 20 years old because you're just so desperate to say that you can do anything. But the actors who were always more successful were the ones who were like, I am a, you know, ingenue type. I'm going to do an ingenue monologue. Even if they had maybe 50 other colors to them, it's like give us something quality that fits who you are right now and then we can see the other colors, you know. And I think that that is true for a lot of things, which is sometimes you're trying to give everybody something. And so you end up being really like boring and beige because you're trying to please everybody. Whereas if you got a little more specific Uh and went after uh a particular group or a particular interest, then I think you'd have better luck. That's my that's my uh, two cents there. I'm not charging for that insight. <laughs> okay. You're not charging or you're not paying? And neither. Well, there you go. Well, you brought dinner tonight. So I was going to say the reason that we're doing this podcast together is because mom very kindly offered to bring dinner over. And so I say, well, while you're here, why don't we pull up a microphone and see what happens? In fairness, I've been nagging you to do a podcast for at least a month. It is true. She's very good at nagging in case I know I, we get I get lots of people who say all the time that they love my mom. And I'm always like, really? Really? <laughs> a lifetime of practice <laughs> to get to this point. Let's talk about the four classes that you're going to be teaching. Yeah. That, uh, are coming up in case people want to sign up. So August 31st through September 2nd, you'll be at... This I'll is, be at Whimsadoodle. It's a quiz yeah. now. I'm like, I was like, where, <laughs> where am I going to be? No, I'll be at Whimsadoodle in Florida and St. Pete's. It is one of my favorite stores to go to. It is one of the, I'd say there are probably like only three stores uh, in America that I will teach at these days. That is one of them. 
Um, Jill, who owns the store, is fantastic. Her selection of mixed media supplies is on point. The staff is great. The other students are great. St. Pete is a great place to visit. This happens to be Labor Day weekend. There are lots of um, cheap hotels and lots of fun things to see. The Dolly Museum is there, right in St. Pete. There's good food. Anyway, it's definitely worth a visit. I'm teaching three different classes, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay, and then September 22nd and 23rd, it's back to an old favorite. The Ink Pad, the second of the third stores that I'm willing to go to in America, um, which is in New York City. The Ink Pad is, a, again, a wonderful store, great selection. It always reminds me of Harry Potter wand store when you go into the store because it's this tiny little space and it is packed floor to ceiling with stamps and ink and paint and cool stuff and she gets a lot of um supplies that other stores don't get partially because it's new york so she has a very dis different customer but she gets a ton of um, products out of japan and like really interesting stuff i always have a good time and the classes are not taught in the store that's the good news thank god <laughs> everybody would have to stand yeah. up in their little square of space so the classes are actually taught in a wonderful space, the West Beth Community Center, which is a large room with tons of windows. Everybody gets, you know, half a table to themselves or whatever. It's plenty of space and you, um, you know, it, it's just a nice situation. There's great, one of my favorite restaurants, actually, 11th Street Cafe. I always go there and get breakfast because <laughs> they are really good and they have amazing French pastries, believe it or not, because the woman who owns it is from Paris. And October 13th and 14th, it's a new, unique class. It is. So it's my first time teaching a scan and cut class that is open to the public. But it's for dun, 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 speci dun. specifically for artists. It is. So this is not like a general scan and cut class. This is scan and cut for artists. So our focus is going to be on creating stamps, on creating stencils, masks, screens, all that kind of stuff. So you're going to learn how to do it. And then it's two-day class. Um, it's in Massachusetts. And we're basically going to make all that stuff and then learn how to use it and learn how our Scanica machines are art powerhouses there is so much that you can do to make your own art tools when you have a scan and cut so you have to have a scan and cut you have to, and yes bring you have to you. have a scan and cut and bring it to class and any scan and cut will do scan and cut one scan and cut two whether you have a dealer model whether you have a like a you know regular model it doesn't matter and then finally november 2nd through 4th you'll be in da da england so i teach in europe once every five years maybe eight years when was the last time i taught in europe probably maybe november in germany. in germany that was probably at least five years ago if not longer than that um it's probably more like eight years anyway so I, and then there was the dreaded <laughs> there was the dreaded, dreaded french france trip <laughs> there, is, there have been a bunch of super fun things um, but anyway, I was going to say it's not often, so I'm thrilled. And the bonus for that class, it is, so there's a couple bonuses. One, it's a three-day class. Can you imagine spending three days with me? How fun would that be? A dream come true. <laughs> but it's not just that you're getting me. I'm actually co-teaching with one of my good friends, Natalie Callback, um, and we are going to be teaching together. And the thing that I like teaching with Natalie is we often get to the same place through totally different methods or 
we use the same technique and end up in totally different places. And the wonderful thing about taking a class from two different teachers like that is that your brain and my brain may not work the same, but maybe it works like Natalie's or maybe, you know, and you can find something in between and you really learn that there isn't a right or a wrong. So we are teaching so many techniques. I believe you're going to walk away with 12 finished collages by the end of the three days, which is pretty exciting to me. Bring a large suitcase. Right. Um, but it's in Coventry, uh, which I understand is quite uh, closer to Dublin than to London is my understanding. But geography was never my strong suit, as you may remember from the car when we used to try to make us play geography games and I could never come up with the names of countries. Sad. You know, she tried to make me smart, you guys. It just didn't work. Uh, but I work with your limitations. Well, keep working, kid. Uh, so it was, uh, that's anyway, so that one is going on. I think that's going to be a really good one. And I think that's probably my last teaching gig of the year. That so. reminds me, you did teach with Natalie in Australia, too. I did teach with Natalie in Australia. It's true. We always have a good time. We laugh a lot. We're very similar. So it always ended up devolving into silly songs and odd f voices. I don't know why, but we both end up making weird noises. So I apologize ahead of time. We have a good time. But yeah, so that's the deal. Come and see me for a class. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing is, even if you don't come to see me for a class, I do encourage you to take class with someone. Just because I believe in classes. I've probably already taken eight classes this year. I'm sure. Um, I think it's it's one of those things that it pushes you. It expands your brain. And if you don't have a local class near you, there's online classes. There are often, for instance, there's free sketch night at the Museum of Fine Arts every Wednesday. And that's not technically a class. But you could sort of treat it like that. And I'm, maybe a museum near you has something like that or a gallery or if you have an urban sketchers group near you or if you want to watch a YouTube video and then do what you see on the YouTube video. I think there are a lot of ways to learn and to keep going. And so whether it's for free or for pay or whatever, I just encourage you to get creative and to keep your mind open to what else is out there. So it's probably time for us to wrap up. Mom, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share? Yes, next time you bring dinner. <laughs> Chicken fingers it is. Okay. So, uh, as always, you can find me at ballsardesigns.typepad.com. Do leave us your comments or questions at ballsardesigns.com backslash arting. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, and we hope that you do, please use the hashtag artingpodcast, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T, all one word. And if you'd like to help the show, you can leave a review on iTunes because that helps other people find the show. So thanks so much for listening and subscribing. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting Podcast. Mm -hmm.